Welcome to the Consumer Rundown Podcast, your destination for the people, companies, and trends transforming today's consumer markets. We are your hosts. I'm Penny. And I'm Dimitri. Our guest today is Brent Varden, a managing partner at Bullish. Bullish blends capital, consulting, and creation to design the most remarkable businesses in the world. Its investment portfolio has included Harry's, Warby Parker, Casper, Sunday, Cake, and many more leading consumer companies. Brent talks about his journey from advertising to venture capital and discusses the importance of emotional connection in building consumer brands. During our wide-ranging conversation, we also delve into the complexities of consumer behavior, brand building, and the evolving landscape of venture capital within consumer. Brent, thanks for joining us. It's great to get a chance to talk to you today. Super, super excited to be here. Before we begin, do you want to do a quick introduction of yourself? Because I think you have a really interesting background. Venture was not your first career. Yeah, sure. I mean, even if you go all the way back, I went to Berkeley and studied literary theory. So that makes it even weirder. I came out of school and I went right into advertising in 99 in the Bay Area in San Francisco and really enjoyed it. It was a ton of fun. I came in buying media and then switched into what is called account planning, which is essentially brand strategy. And that I had a real passion for. And actually, the literary thing actually made a lot of sense because it was about the structure and pattern of connecting like audiences and readers. I really didn't really learn how I learned or really figured out how to really get excited about something until I got into that. And I was working on all different kinds of things. And I was learning the kind of the art and science of building brand value for all kinds of brands from Cisco Systems to Lowe's to to Microsoft, to Under Armour, to Gillette. I worked in every single category except automotive, which is just crazy because I love cars so much. So I kept kind of moving up the ranks in that stuff. Came planning director, strategy director, was at a huge agency in New York then at the time, BBDO, and was working on mega, mega, mega businesses. That's some of those, those blue chip brands. And then I moved over into Deutsch, which is an integrated, really business-driven creative agency. And that's where I met Mike, my co-founder, managing partner. And we were just doing really integrated solutions to solving clients' brand and marketing problems. And I loved it. It's about that time, 2008, we call it like the bullish Big Bang Theory, where Mike, my partner, was still at Deutsch. He was a partner there. And he started to recognize this change in consumer businesses being started. We had this great maturation of consumer desire in terms of empowerment. We had this big falling out of the financial institution, this rise of frugalism. You also had design and brand beginning more and more popular. And then you had this new crop of entrepreneurs coming out and then this massive arbitrage in digital media. So I'm getting ahead of myself on our background, but like that's how we got into it. First round capital was incredibly kind to us and made some initial introductions. And suddenly we were investing out of a single family office and we were in the right place at the right time. That's an incredible story. In hindsight, was transitioning into venture capital feel like the natural next step in your life? Yeah, I think so. And we were doing this for a while. Mike was more sure than I was. And I was behind him in my career. I had become a partner at Deutsch and the chief strategy officer. And part of that was the ability to help Mike and what he was doing in the precursor to Bullish. But I understood what he was trying to do really, really well. And I really, really liked it. We talk about ourselves as a marketing operating partner that has capital, consulting, and creation all under one roof. 
So in one telling, I am a venture capitalist and one telling, I'm a marketing person. And we do hold those two concepts together. Bullish is what I wanted to do, is what Mike wanted to do, which I will humbly say is like nothing else. So I guess the short answer question is, yeah, I really wanted to go more into being in at the gestational stages of a business and really helping kind of shape the cartilage up and to the right in that hockey stick motion by some of the the dark arts that I've been able to hone over the years through research and strategy and brand building and all that stuff. I made the leap when my wife had our first kid. It was literally on day two of paternity leave. I'm like, there is no more future for me except this one idea. The first thing I chased in my life was my wife. The second thing I chased was bullish. And that was it for me. So that I was like, yeah, this is the only thing I want to do. I love that. You mentioned your advertising and marketing expertise gives you an edge in evaluating consumer companies. Did you guys see this as a unique advantage over other venture capitalists who might not have that background? Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. I think we were tourists in the beginning. I think we can call ourselves expats in this thing called venture capital. But we still need to earn a little bit more and to become like real natives of it. But we're in our lane. Like We can add a lot of value, a ton of value in what we do and what we invest in. We don't invest in anything in B2B. We only do B2C propositions. And our super highway lane is in goods and services. If you look at our best investments and not to cherry pick, but if you look at the, in the portfolios overall, it's pretty strong. But if you look at Harry's and Warby and Peloton and Casper and Carob and Hue Chocolate and Nom Nom, Sunday Lawn and Cake, they're all consumer goods and services that have a customer on day one. And they're trying to find new and interesting ways to go to market that are sustainable, that are accretive to like the overall awareness of this proposition. And they're essentially about creating innovation that people want and being able to create a relationship with them that you get them to come back organically. That's the stuff that we've been practicing for a very long time. I spent over 20 years now doing consumer research, going to people's homes, doing ethnographies, surveying people, and just kind of honing our skills in and around what it, what's the difference between what people say they need and what they really want. And mm -hmm. I've always intrigued by people that have traditional finance backgrounds or pure operating backgrounds when they go into consumer, what I call true consumer, as early as we do, you know, seed. And I'm like, what are you looking at? Because the financial model is just an idea. Where do you get the conviction? We yeah. have to get service, but we've got lots of reps. I'm looking at culture, looking at ideas. And, and you kind of noted on it where it's like, because the agency part of Bullish is working with clients on the big side, we do have an arbitrage in and around what the strategics are interested in and what the, what's coming up. I don't know. I don't know. To that point, do you think the influx of capital into consumer startups over the last five to 10 years led to a wave of chasing easy money with ill-defined investment thesis? Was that a big mistake that contributed to later difficulties that we've seen over the last 18 months? If I think back, a lot of money came in after a few high-profile exits. I'm thinking of Vitamin Water, Dollar of Shave Club, and Buy. Did those deals give a false impression of how easy it was to be successful making investments within consumer? My background is not in traditional finance. I've just been working with those people for a long time and now spending a lot of time in those rooms. And what I've noticed is the traditional venture mind is it does look for arbitrage looks and looks for like, oh, it's really simple to start a consumer brand today. And it's really simple, inexpensive to acquire them. And it's like, great, 
contract manufacturing has opened up in an amazing way. The Fortune 50, let alone the 500, are on this thing called digital media. They don't understand it. Oh, great. Let's just open this up. In the beginning, of when we look back at it now, it's like those are premium value brands. Those are brands that are a cut above, I would say, good, better, best. They're better brands. And they're better businesses. They're better product. They're better, and they're better branded and all that stuff. And it looked really, really simple. What I've noticed is that early stage venture and venture in general just hates cost of acquisition. We're much more tolerant of it because we care more deeply about average order value and LTV. Turns out driving average order value and LTV is hard work. Buying inexpensive customers in the early days is not. So I think it looked opportunistic. A lot of money went in, seemed very simple. Oh, great. We'll just take this kind of Silicon Valley consumer model, which is a software model, which is product-led growth, which is not the way true consumer works. Right before the pandemic, DTC was getting scared of people because the market had become more efficient in a way and the increasing opacity of the metas of the world and all that stuff. So it's gotten scarier for people. And I think it just has gotten harder. And so I think the people that are like, hey, this looks like quick money are gone. You rightly point out how the it's easy to start a brand mentality overlooks the nuances and the hard work involved in creating a profitable brand. I want to dig deeper on the point you just made. You mentioned that consumer companies can't follow the software model by leading with the product. From your perspective, how should founders think about building consumer companies? Yeah. How much time do we have? <laughs> as much as you need. Yeah, I know. We study this a lot and we have something called the Remarkability Index. What we're tracking is really how much heat is on this brand. And what that remarkability index does is that it goes to a certain type of group of people that we've identified, pioneers that are overly influential, and they're not the cool kids sitting on Abbott Kinney. So we go to that group and we check them against this metric, and then we have seven drivers that are in it. And the reason I'm saying all this is because there's a couple of things. You do have to have good product. You do have to have something that is functionally worth paying attention to. It needs to be well-branded. That's just the way it is. And it doesn't mean it needs to be super slick. Sometimes being well-branded can be really lo-fi. It just, it needs to be branded in a way that like really works for that core, core, core user that you're going after. And you got to have a really, really powerful team. After that, what you need to be doing is managing your business as if it is a brand, as if you are trying to go and get a customer and over-serve them with intentionality way beyond just doing surveys getting to know them and really understanding them and anticipating their needs to make another product for them, to give them another reason to come back and to do it as organically as possible my, through an email or on their own accord in and around that stuff. Building great consumer brands is your ability to really create such a deep connection with someone through your products and your service that they want to talk about you in the right time, in the right moment. And that's a little bit different than product-led growth that comes out of the West Coast, which is you just keep hacking the feature set, just create incremental value and all that stuff to create a different kind of virality loop, which is great. But a lot of those things are network effect-based and marketplace-based and those things, but there's no real benefit to telling people to buy Harry's or get this huge chocolate other than the satisfaction someone has of sharing something with someone else. And that is getting people into a really loved state with your product and your brand because you've thought about the entirety of the consumer experience. 
And I guess that is the Bay I would sum it up is building a, a consumer brand. You just have to be really, really holistic in how you think about the consumer's journey to you, away from you and back to you and using everything in your arsenal and coordinating it extremely well. Makes sense. When yeah. you first meet with founders, what's the one question you need to have a good answer to in order for you to make an investment or be interested in making an investment? One of the things I like to ask about is where are you going to overinvest to drive remarkability? And that usually starts a very interesting discussion. First of all, people are like, what do you mean? Which is like, there's, there's a playbook to like starting a consumer brand. You know, if we were to open up your financial model, where would we see something that goes, oh, you're kind of overspending here. And what is that about? And why are you doing it? And where do you have the conviction to do it? And if someone says product, that's usually not a great answer. I believe in product over everything, great product, and they will come. That's not really the way it works. There's plenty of good products out there in this country. And with all due to respect to people below the poverty line, and like there's a lot of accessibility to it. So what we're looking for is someone who's talking about how they're going to market in a really, really thoughtful way that weaves their brand into an existing group's life. You and I were talking the other day, it does kind of get into this thing of community. We're going to make community around the brand. Uh, I'm not sure that's a really like a real concept, but building brands into communities, overlooked, underutilized, dismissed communities that just feel like that's too hard to, to serve that community, building stuff for them that has a disproportionately high influence on the rest or the early majority, that stuff's great. So when we're having more of a conversation about go-to-market, around the partnerships they want to do, around how they're thinking about using DTC versus retail and not making them do the same things. That's a really good conversation. When people are like, hey, I found this new way to make X and I give, I'm give, i going to give it to them for Y price. That's a tougher conversation. There's a little bit of a red, red flag there. A lot of founders do lead with that. They do talk about how's my product different mm -hmm. than what else is in the market. Yeah, Because I see this a lot now in the better for you food and beverage categories. Mm -hmm. that at the beginning of the deck, they have a slide comparing these are the nutritional facts for my product versus the nutritional facts for the products that are out there right now. Mm -hmm. I was thinking to myself, that's great. But as soon as you go to market, the next founder is going to look at that same chart mm. and say, I'm going to just remove a bit more sugar and completely unsurp your competitive position. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Don't get me wrong. Product matters. One of the big reasons that Mike and I got into this is we want to be closer to product. If you grow up in the big world of scaled advertising, sometimes you're getting handed broken toys, right? And you're like, we really need to fix the toy. <laughs> like, can't. We got to keep going. So product really matters. And I think, again, everything starts with product. And if you look at the pedigree of where consumer investing comes from, Silicon Valley technology is product, 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 product. But like you just said, it's a great point. That only gets you so far. And I think, especially in this day and age, when the attention tax for not being remarkably different, it's super high. So it's got to be a remarkably different proposition or delivered in a remarkably different way. One of our companies, Sunday Lawn, is a great example. Scott has owned that business for a very long time around like taking care of your lawn, seeds, chemicals, bad chemicals. So they made a better ingredients for your lawn food and stuff like that. They did it, right? And it's like four times less toxic. But it's the way they deliver it, which is quite interesting because they go in and learn about your land. They learn about your weather pattern and they make a custom lawn plan for you. And guess what? It's more effective. 
And now what they have is the ability to consult with you. We talk about this as consultative commerce. And we've been talking about this as the next phase that we're going into now, which is only going to be like accelerated through AI. But the ability to go, okay, great. Now I can help you. And now I can talk to you about maybe pest control and around that stuff. Their product is, I could even argue, remarkably better. But if the experience, again, which is way more interesting, it's way more helpful. And now, you know, Sunday is like if you had a groundskeeper in your pocket where people don't really have green thumbs or not born with it. The home improvement industry, which we have an obscene amount of experience in from time on Lowe's to Neighborly to Sherwin-Williams to Messman's Who Made, doesn't really care about the outdoors. That's a really interesting business to us all of a sudden. That's awesome. Another word that gets a lot of attention to consumers, authenticity. Yeah. Is that something that you're focused on? And then when you do hear founders focusing on authenticity, we are an authentic product, we provide an authentic experience. What's your reaction to it as an investor? It's tough, right? Because authenticity is kind of everything and nothing. It's about being true and genuine. And isn't that table stakes today in a world where you can find pretty much anything out that you need to find out about companies and things like that? That said, there's a lot of fake stuff out there. I think that's what we're talking about when we talk about that stuff is honesty and quality of products and having a real reason for being in that marketplace that you're personally connected to as a team and that that customer base would appreciate in around that stuff. I think it's important because it's a really hard thing to do. Having an idea, I guess, that's authentically authentic to you and authentically connected to a market. I think that's really important. It is. But I think that's that's just a word that is kind of associated with, is this person all in on this? Like, do they have a unique insight into the category? Do they have an access advantage to it? And when we invest, it's investing so early. It's the jockey. It's not the horse or the jockeys. It's not the horse. So I think that's really interesting. If it's like, we're going to make an authentic brand through branding, I think it is very, very surface level. And you know, someone with a big advertising marketing branding background, that's just not enough for us. And it's not enough for, it's not enough for people out there. If it's not an authentic product and authentic to the category, yeah, it's really problematic. One question that's always fascinated me is why do consumers buy what they buy? What's your take on it? Because you, know, you do a lot of research, you understand consumer behavior, yeah. consumer buying patterns. If you had to answer that one question in a as simple way as possible, why do consumers buy what they buy? I think at the end of the day, we are socially directed people. We are not self-directed rational decision makers. I subscribe to the idea that we are socially directed irrational beings and people make emotional decisions and they need rational alibis for them. People make decisions when they're in deep, deep need that is driven by an emotion that I absolutely need that to get that done right here, right now. Or they do it because they're in a, a deep, deep desire state. And they're like, I want that thing. I want it. I think few people move towards anything without some kind of emotional motion towards it. You can get really excited about something where it's like, oh, I was, I was, God, that seems like a really smart way to solve getting my bed into this apartment in the city. Casper was a really remarkable when it first came out because it was like, oh, a bed in a box. That's so great. It made sense. And like we can post-rationalize it. But you know, you had an emotional reaction to the delight of like, that's great. That's fantastic. That's done. I need to get that done. I'm excited to get that done. I guess the simplest way I'd say it is like people buy when they feel an emotional pull towards that thing. And it it just is never not that. Even when you're buying on Amazon, you're like, I got to get this off my list. 
that's an emotional desire. Makes sense. Let's talk about Casper for a second. And not, not just that, yeah. I don't want to pick on Casper or focus on Casper, but yeah. just more about consumer behavior and buying patterns versus a business model that works. The direct-to-consumer model worked really well for a period of time. Now, a lot of people have become very critical of it. Economics for a lot of these companies has not worked out. Mm-hmm. As an investor, what's your biggest lesson? We've been banging this drum for a while. So, you know, some of our companies have, have struggled as a result of what was happening in DTC right before the pandemic and then iOS 14 coming on in it. The thing that we've been talking about for a, a while is you cannot rely on DTC alone. And if you look at a pure play DTC brand, the last one we really invested in that was like, hey, we're going to DTC is Harry's. And even still, Harry's. Then went out a year later, you know, and bought their factory and then started doing wholesale and then went omni very, very quickly. So the big thing that we really talk about is what is your path to not getting off DTC, but not becoming so dependent on DTC and then creating a real difference between what you're doing on DTC and what you're doing everywhere else. So I'll talk about another one of our investments, Cake. Cake's doing a great job at this and it's a great playbook. So Cake is really accessible, sex toys and lubes and things like that. They had to start at Walmart. So they got that done. It's really accessible. But that brand is an invitation to explore what you're curious about in sex and sexual wellness and those things. And it's a no judgment place. And it's try this, try that, try this, try that, try this. When DTC comes on there, and then you can look at that business and like they have a DTC business and they have a a nice retail business. The role of DTC is to be more intimate, no pun intended, with that user, show them some stuff that won't get onto retailer shelves. It's a little bit more intense, things like that. To learn a little bit more about the customer, make some more recommendations that you can do in a two-way kind of thing. And to be in a much more interactive service-based kind of relationship with a core group of users where, yeah, you can sell expensive stuff or more profitable stuff or stuff like that, but that's not the entirety of your business. So... I think the biggest thing that we're all learning is that you need to have DTC. You can't rely on DTC. It is your pipe towards understanding. It's a shortcut to new product innovation. It's a great test bed. You can do remarkable stuff out there that gets noticed. You can bring your customers in there and cultivate them into a customer base and give them loyalty in around that stuff. But you've got to be very aggressively moving towards other ways that people can come in contact with you in retail or in specialty retail or in hospitality or in travel around those things and thinking really ambitiously about where's the volume in this business, where's the discovery in this business, and where's the margin in this business and not having every single thing do the exact same thing. And it's a big mistake people make is they just go, oh, like DTC isn't performing as well as retail. Yeah, no, it's not. Or retail isn't doing this thing I need that DTC does. No, it's not. So just delineate those two things and know what each thing is doing for the business. The challenge that I see for emerging brands, getting into retail is really, really hard. They're fighting for a small piece of shelf space, I think around 10 15%. Given these hurdles, what strategies can emerging brands adopt to break through and secure long-term retail partnerships and ultimately build a thriving business? The only way you win is by having power over the retailers or they'll bury you. So if you don't have some heat and you don't have a customer that they want, why should they bring you on? It's a lot of work. And 
if you're not able to get someone to pay 20% more for your brand and the retailer gets to take home a little extra cash, there's no reason for you to be there. Again, like in this country, there's a lot of good enough stuff out there. I'll kind of maybe like talk out of both sides of my mouth is like, don't go to retail too soon. Build up a, a customer base that retailers want. That's the thing in true consumer venture. That, that's the game is to really build up a customer base that loves you. And I don't mean because they're constantly saying they do. It's a customer base that comes back to you organically, north of 40% repeat purchase rates, that has growing AOV, that loves buying like that next new thing from you, that does talk and post about you frequently, our remarkability metric. But those are the things that are really important that, that give you a seat at the table to negotiate with retailers. Hugh Chocolate did a great job with this. They weren't particularly huge. GTC, they had their restaurant. And if you were in New York, people thought they were just everywhere. But Jason and his family, Jason Carp, who, who founded it with his wife and brother-in-law, they held back, they held back distribution a little bit so that the retailers were asking for it. They let the fame open some doors for them so that they had a bit more of a power position, if you will. If you go asking at retail, you're in trouble. But if you're able to make a suggestion about what might be there, it's great. I think the other thing too is you've got to have a product portfolio where everything isn't at retail, which is at DTC. You want to have some difference in and around those things. The name of the game in retail is being able to offer a unique product to retailers. So innovation is super, super important. What's the next thing you're going to make? What's the version you're going to make? What's the other thing you can sell to them? There was an article at the beginning of the pandemic where they were ripping all these next generation consumer companies started as DTC to try and sell someone, someone else. That's the game. That is, that is absolutely the game. You paid Uncle Zuckerberg some amount of money for that customer. They're your customer now. So what are you going to do to surprise and delight them again, to get them coming back for the same thing or coming back to you to solve a different job that's adjacent to what you actually do? I think I went off on a lot of tangents there. But, <laughs> yeah. These are good tangents. But do you think founders understand that? The founders you come across, because that's a very nuanced yeah. strategy. It's a complex strategy to implement and requires a lot of forethought and planning to do that. Yeah. Founders actually understand that all these nuances around retail and how to approach retail. Like you said, that you're not the one knocking on the door, they're knocking on your door. No, I, I don't think they do. Bullish invest in less than 1% of the deals we see. We see over 3,000 deals a year. That's the kind of conversation we want to get into pretty soon to your earlier question. And if we're having a conversation like that early on, it's really, really interesting. If we're having a conversation about how this brand is going to go to market and how they're going to how they're going to strategically think about getting into retail, when, why, what they want to do there, that's a great signal that they're thinking about the right way. But the short answer to your question is no, not a lot of founders are, are thinking about that. It is really hard to start a company. Being a magnetic founder, having an idea where you can make and find a, a really interesting way to make a remarkably different product and branding it in a really interesting way, not just in packaging and, and website and logo, but an experience. That's super hard. And that's just the start. It's when you're spending the energy thinking about what's next over the next one to two to three years. And not a lot of people are doing that. Let's talk about the future. I have a thesis that Amazon defined e-commerce in the 2000s, Shopify defined it in the 2010s, and then TikTok will define it in the 2020s. When you hear that, what's your reaction? I think it's really interesting because Amazon and Shopify are more alike 
than TikTok being different than both those things. We're big believers in creator-led commerce. We're big believers in it. We're seeing real distrust from influencers in and around that stuff and a real interest in creator-led businesses. And I'll put Rihanna is a creator in this and she's in it. And to use an overused word that we were just talking about, it's a really authentic thing from her. She's in it. Like Kim Kardashian is in it, you know, like you can tell it's interesting, but there's a lot of stuff that's happening off of YouTube creators. They're just looking to make a quick buck, but some are really, really into it because they know they might have a shelf life and they're trying to create a business that goes above and beyond them and leaves a legacy or even better, just annuity stream for them and around those things. To your hypothesis, TikTok's one of the best places for creators in and around that stuff. The social commerce that's coming out out of uh, Asia is really, really interesting. I think it's a pretty good, I think it's a pretty good hypothesis. I still think TikTok's very, very hard to do well. And I've got some friends at TikTok high up inside of it, ex-brand and marketing people that would probably smack me right now. But a lot of early stage companies are still struggling with like how to do it really, really well. And big companies are having a horrible time doing it because you, you don't really make advertising. You're really trying to make things there. And untraining that muscle is just really uncomfortable for classically trained marketers. I think it's a pretty good thesis. I think just social selling in general will be really interesting. I'm still waiting for Pinterest to explode. The team over there, the new team has done some really great stuff. The CMO there is super strong and the new uh, CEO bill, I think it is. They're really pushing into what it is, but that's really interesting. A place where everybody knows I'm organizing around interests as opposed to relationships. That's an interesting thing where you're like, yeah, okay, cool. I'm organizing around interests. Yeah, I can be marketed to either brands or by individuals. I think that's really, really interesting. And TikToks, it's not really built around your network. It's built around content and interest. That's a much more viable way to be a commercial platform. When you're on the meta ecosystem, it's always just kind of incongruous. It's supposed to be your, your network and your relationships. And you're talking and someone jumps into your conversation and is like, look, underwear. And you're like, okay, yeah, got it. You know, But I think it's much more natural on TikTok. Makes sense. Last question. And yeah. uh, I asked this question from everyone on the podcast. What principles drive you and define you, whether it's in your professional life or in your personal life? I grew up always wanting to be in team situations. I was a pretty good athlete in high school. That got me into Berkeley. I've always been driven by the joy of working on a team. And I think one of the things that we try to do is create an extremely ambitious environment where everybody's accountable to each other. And those are non-negotiables. You have to have ambition and you have to have accountability to your partner sitting next to you, beside you, below you, up and down. We can teach and hone and shape anything else. But if you're all ambition and no accountability, you're a horrible teammate. You're not doing your part. You're probably going to be in it for yourself. And you're not excited about winning together. And if you're all accountability and no ambition, you're not going to take any shots. You're going to play too worried and in and around those things. And a lot of what we do is about absorbing the fear for people about what to do next. And that's really important to, to me personally. I'm very willing to take that on. I'm very willing to go first. I'm very willing to be wrong because making a statement and making a move forward, sometimes it takes just a little bit of a suggestion, a little bit of an idea to get everybody else to follow. And when you get moving and when you get going, you can manifest something that doesn't have a lot of chances of succeeding. 
Momentum's a really, really powerful thing. That's a lot about how we run. Those things are really, really important to me. Having a really healthy balance between ambition and accountability, being willing to have an opinion. At Bullish, you cannot be neutral. You can be for or against, but you cannot be neutral. And you don't have to be the loudest person in the room. You can say it in private or anything like that. You just got to have an opinion. And the company is run on values that are really, really near and dear to us. Be a yes, if kind of person, find the good. These are things that are really, really important. It's really hard out there. It's complex. No is really easy. Yes, is very hard. Do the work to try and make yes easier to say for yourself, for your teammates, for everybody else. That's a great sentiment. When I first joined Skyview, I got lunch with one of the people. And one of the first things he said to me was, to be a good investor, you need to take a point of view. Mm. Take a point of view and defend that point of view. That's always stayed with me. In situations where people ask me, what's your opinion? To have mm-hmm. an opinion ready. Yeah. Because yeah. it's really easy to take two, three, four sides of an issue. But it's a lot harder to have one opinion and defend that opinion. It is. I think the, the other value that we have at Bullish, which is near and dear to my heart too, is the third value, which is be it, don't say it. And have that opinion and own it and invest in it and do it and help others get there as well too, if you really, really believe in it. Brent, thanks for joining us. It's been a great conversation. Really enjoyed meeting you, talking to you. Likewise, man. This concludes our episode with Brett Varton from Bullish. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe for more episodes of the Consumer Rundown podcast and visit us at consumerrundown.com. See you next time.